The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. I hope you're doing well. So who do you think is the top football coach today in the college and pro game? It's hard to argue that anyone is better than Nick Saban, right? And I know I've given you content from Nick Saban in the past, but I just couldn't resist doing it again. It's just so damn good. And keep in mind, you have to hear something seven times before it fully registers with you. So that's why I'm giving you this great Nick Saban interview. It's one of the best I've ever heard. Listen for how he uses silence to make people feel uncomfortable as he helps athletes understand why they're underperforming. Is this something that might be valuable to you? Also listen for how his teams do mental conditioning two to three times a week just like they do weight training. And listen for how Saban makes practices harder than games. And that's why it's so beneficial. And then after Nick Saban, we're going to listen to a leadership coach with a military background. He talks about the fact that you don't want to make your environment too comfortable. Listen for how you can't grow if you're comfortable. So you have to create a culture where things are uncomfortable at times. What do you think about that relative to your culture? And here's the essence of what you'll learn. To effectively influence people, you do it through questions, not telling people things. Saban is a shining example of this and how he uses silence in dealing with underperforming players. He makes them think, and that's the key. So the bottom line is questions are the key to influence, not telling people things. I see that this is something I personally have to get better at. How about you? So buckle up as we start to listen to the legendary Nick Saban. Remember, hey, as a coach here at the University of Texas, you're living the dream. Two thousand eleven, we won the national championship. Right? We beat LSU. We had the rematch game and everything. Everyone's all excited, and you know we're national champions again. We won in two thousand nine. We won again in two thousand eleven. I'll never forget. Everyone, you know, they're thinking, okay, we got two or three weeks to relax before we have to even think about football again. Two days after we win the national championship, we haven't even had the parade yet. Coach Saban calls a team meeting, and we're thinking, okay, well, you know, it's probably just some kind of logistics about the parade. He gets up there and he says, all right, guys, great season last season. I know it's two days after. I mean, some of us still have confetti in our hair. You know, I mean, it's two days after. He says, last year's in the past. Time to move on. If we really want to win the national championship next year, we got to rip off the rearview mirror. Forget about last year. We're on to next year, right? And we're thinking, man, two days. We only got two days to enjoy all that work for two days. January 8th, 2018. Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. The college football playoff national championship between Alabama and Georgia has careened into overtime. The score, Alabama 20, Georgia 20. Alabama ball, second and 26. Stepping back, loads up, looks long, throws, end zone, touchdown! Touchdown, Alabama! Devontae Smith, touchdown, Alabama! Alabama freshman and backup quarterback Tua Tunga-Viola hits Devonta Smith with a shocking 41-yard touchdown strike, catapulting the Crimson Tide to the 2018 College Football National Championship. Alabama is back as the champion of college football! The title is Coach Nick Saban's sixth. 
tying him for the most by a coach in the modern era. Several hours later, following an on-field trophy presentation that felt like Times Square at the strike of midnight on New Year's Eve, and a heartfelt congratulatory speech Saban makes to his team, the coach sits down with a couple of his agents from CAA. The conversation turns to an essential question. Should Saban go back to the NFL? There are, not surprisingly, several potential suitors, including, reportedly, the New York football giants. The conversation doesn't last long. Saban decides to stay in Tuscaloosa. He loves it there. And perhaps more decisively, Terry, his wife of more than 45 years, loves it there too. And together, they both want more. More titles, more time at their favorite home of his career, and more time to guarantee that he will be regarded as the greatest college football coach ever. Welcome to Origins Chapter 3, Origins of a Champion, Nick Saban and Alabama's Crimson Tide, a journey inside the house of Saban, and a look at how Saban is preparing for his 10th year as Alabama's head coach. We will talk with Saban himself, wife Terry, fabled strength coach Scotty Cochran, former Yankees manager and Saban friend Joe Girardi, former players and others, all in an attempt to discover why Nick Saban's Alabama college football teams are so freaking successful. This exploration started in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I sat down one morning to get the story from Saban himself in his private office. It's just as you might imagine, well-organized, uber-masculine, and packed floor-to-ceiling with Saban memorabilia, enough for five or six commonplace living legends. Yeah, my dad started Pop Warner football in our area in West Virginia, and I think when I was about 10 years old, because if you can get a picture, there were like seven coal mining towns and a lot of the kids weren't able to participate because all these coal mining towns were up in hollows, you know, so we didn't have any transportation. The only way we'd get home was hitchhike, you know, after practice or whatever. So a lot of guys didn't participate. So my dad bought a bus, went and picked the kids up, took them home after practice. But the field that we had, Ida Mae Baldomen, in the one end zone, there was a mountain of a hill that was like, layered and straight up and our conditioning would always be to run this hill and you had to most of the time we practiced till dark so you had to bring verification that you got to the top you had to grab a leaf off a tree at the top of the hill and it was a difficult conditioning process (laughs) very difficult and one that anybody that ever played for them always remembers but you know it's those kind of things that are difficult and hard that I think you you always remember. Terry Saban is Nick Saban's wife of more than 45 years and is well-known as a major influence in the coach's life. As major, really, as an influence can get. Growing up in West Virginia, you have all these little communities that are separated by mountains. And during that time in our life, you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have any of the social media. So a mountain away in West Virginia was like a world away anywhere else. It was like a continent away. But even then, back in my little community, Nick's father's reputation was one of successful businessman because he owned a gas station and a Dairy Queen. But he was a man to be reckoned with in the coal mining community, that he was a leader in the community because he was a Pop Warner coach and owner of the gas station where everyone stopped and gathered every evening and discussed everyone's problems. And as I got to know Nick better and we started dating and I was able to be around Big Nick and see him firsthand and and watch his relationship with his son. You know, there was a lot of respect, but there was also some fear. He didn't talk a lot. He certainly didn't smile and laugh a lot. He was very focused, but he set a great example. You always knew you were loved. As a young boy, Nick went everywhere with his father, whether it was the trash dump or to line the baseball field at all of his games. And you always knew where you stood with Big Nick. Yes, he was a disciplinarian. Yes, he was tough, but he also had a big heart. And I'd like to think that Nick inherited those traits from his dad. 
Scott Cochran was born on March 21st, 1979 in New Orleans and has a bachelor's in kinesiology and a master's in sports management, both from LSU. He joined Nick Saban at his alma mater in 2003 when Saban won his first national championship. In 2004, Cochran became an assistant strength and conditioning coach for the New Orleans Hornets and remained in that position until 2006. The next year, he reunited with Saban and the Crimson Tide. He spends a bunch of his time at the school's 37,000 square foot weight room. Cochran has been on staff for every Saban National Championship win and is among the highest paid assistant coaches in the country. When Saban first came to Alabama, he told players that practice would be harder than games, a philosophy Cochran is credited with enforcing. He has also become well known for a tagline of sorts, the very succinct but somehow impactful, yeah, 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 which one hears constantly from the sidelines. So I was working in the weight room at LSU. I worked for Tommy Moffitt as a volunteer, and then I worked my way up to a GA position and an assistant strength coach for him working with other sports and uh, helped out a little bit with football and got to know Coach through that. And then I went to the NBA, and when he got the job here, you already know, baby. Godfather of football calls. You come a-running. You already know. Players, current and former, have no problem remembering Cochran. Barrett Jones played for Saban at Alabama from 2008 to 2012 as an offensive lineman and in 2011 was a unanimous first-team All-American and winner of the Outland Trophy, awarded to the nation's best lineman in college football. The first day I ever got to Alabama, it was one of those Tuscaloosa days where it was probably 110 degrees. And the whole offseason, they had been telling us the first day we get there, we're going to have this 110 test. And what it was was 16 110-yard sprints and you had 40 seconds in between each one, and you had to make each sprint in a certain time. My time was about 17 seconds. So I knew the first day I got there, I was going to have to run 16, 110-yard sprints. I had no doubt. I'd trained for that. I was ready for that. I think most of the guys in our class were ready for that. They were ready to do that test just like it sounded. So we get there, and and, uh, we actually board buses. And uh, Coach Cochran, who's the strength coach, he gets us all on the bus, and he says, we're going to the stadium. We're going to run our first 110 test ever in the stadium. So here we go. We all bust off to Bryant-Denny Stadium. You know, I grew up watching some Alabama games, and so here's a dream come true. I'm walking into Bryant-Denny Stadium. I'd never seen it empty before. It looks a lot different empty. And you know, normally being in the stadium would be a really cool thing, but on a day like this, a Tuscaloosa hot day, what the stadium did is it created, it took 100 degrees to probably 120 degrees, right? There's no breeze. You almost feel like you're in a sauna, right, inside a stadium. There's no wind. It's just a, it's hot. It's one of those days when you walk outside, you feel like you're in an oven. So we get out there, and uh, Coach Cochran, he says, all right, you guys know what's coming. we got 16 110-yard sprints. There's only one caveat. There's one rule, and that's that during this whole drill, you are not allowed to bend over. You can't bend over, right? You can't gasp forever. Right? When you're tired, when you're running a lot of sprints, the one thing your body, for some reason, wants to do is bend over and try to get your breath. He says there's no bending over. When you bend over, the opponent sees you're tired, and we're not going to have that at Alabama. We're not going to ever tell the opponent we're tired. There will never be any bending over in any drill we do. So we start running, and uh, we probably run uh, the first eight sprints, and everybody's doing pretty well. right? Everybody trained, and you know we get done with the first eight. You know, people are killing it. People are killing the drill. Everybody's excited. They're excited to be there. They're excited to be in the stadium. Probably about number nine, somebody, I can't remember who it was, but one of the players just gave a very subtle, a very subtle bend over. And Coach Cochran, he said, that one doesn't count. That rub doesn't count. And I'll never forget him saying that. There were a few other words mixed in, but we'll just say for now, that one doesn't count. Right? That was the gist of what he said. And uh, so I said, okay, that's fine. You know, 17, I can handle 17. It's just one extra. We get out there. We keep running. Somebody else, two reps later, bends over, right? That one doesn't count. Again, next rep, that one doesn't count. That one doesn't count. We ended up running 28 110s that day, right? 28 110s. I had been training, you know, for sports my whole life. I'd never thrown up. I'm not a throw-up guy. I was throwing up things from like three Thanksgivings ago. What's the deal, Scott, with leaning over? I had a couple of former players who talked about (laughs) they have these sessions where they're not allowed to lean over. Ever. Ever, you are not allowed to ever bend over. And it's a mindset more than anything. So it's not physiological. Well, there is a physiological aspect to it because you got to think about it. If I'm hunched over, I'm closing up my breathing ways. 
So everybody always says, put your hands on your head, stand up tall, open your chest as much as you can to get as much air in, you know, and we try to coach them up. Don't put your hands on your head either because it's showing weakness there too. But in Coach Saban's mind, if you're bent over, your opponent is licking their chops because they're like, oh, I got him now. I got him exhausted. He's hurting. I can get him now. And our goal is to never show that weakness. The best part about it is when the guys learn that, they find out when they're 30, 40 years old and they've gone through this program that they do their best not even to yawn when they're at work. You know, just little things like that that becomes that part of their process. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's almost like the physical equivalent of poker, right? You're just not going to give anything away. Exactly right. You're not going to let them know you're breaking me. And, you know, we coach the guys hard because we want them to be ready for that, you know. I'm sure they'd much rather get yelled at, screamed at by me or Coach Saban or their position coach than lose a game. (laughs) But I heard you never raise your voice. Come on. (laughs) Come on, baby. You know better than that. I love that story because I think it just encapsulates so perfectly the program. Like, bending over doesn't actually matter as far as, like, doing the drill. You know, they say you can get air better when you stand up straight. I don't even know if that's actually true. Most coaches would say, as long as you're making your times, I don't really care what you're doing. But it's not about that, right? It's not about the function. It's not about the results. It's about the process. It's about the standard. It's about that's the way we do things at the University of Alabama. It doesn't matter what you think about it. If you like it or you don't like it, we're doing it this way. After limited playing time in his first two seasons at Alabama, quarterback Greg McElroy led the Crimson Tide to an undefeated 14-0 season in 2009, which included the SEC Championship and the BCS National Championship. He was also named MVP. In 2010, McElroy was named a first-team academic All-American. He finished his college career with a 24-3 record. The New York Jets drafted McElroy in 2011, and he retired from the Cincinnati Bengals in 2013. McElroy is currently working as a commentator at ESPN. It was in your hands as a leader of the team on the field that you brought him the first national championship in 2009, correct? I was a part of that. Some would say that I was a hindrance in some ways that year, <laughs> but I was I was a part of that team, and and uh, we were part of his only undefeated championship team, which I still kind of have to pinch myself to think about, to think how many times he's won it, and for us to be a part of a, a bit of a unique team and the fact that we never had to experience that difficult nature of dealing with a loss was, uh, was kind of special. So how does... Saban, as a coach, keep the level of play so high during an entire season? I mean, obviously, that's a coach's job. But when you're talking about that kind of demand for excellence day in and day out, what do you think in terms of his formula, his recipe, the way he treated all of you that got those kind of results? Well, at the time, Jim, I just didn't know any better. All of us were on the team. We only had, for the most part, one college experience outside of a transfer to here and there that would come in to the program. When you only have one college experience, there's not really anything else to draw from. And what I didn't realize until I got into a role at ESPN and started going around and seeing other practices was just how hard we practiced in school and the accountability that was expected every single repetition throughout the course of the season. So it's almost like Bill Belichick where fear is used to a certain extent to make sure that they get the most out of the actual players themselves because you never walk into it feeling nervous about losing your job or anything like that. But you know deep down, whether it's said or not said, that if you don't perform well in a rep, in a practice, in a period, your job is very much in jeopardy because of the way he's recruited. So I think that he has a standard that he sets for the program, but that's entirely due to the amount of depth that he has within the roster and knowing that every single player, they might be a first-rounder down the road, but they are absolutely replaceable if they're not willing to toe the line. Bleacher Report's path from a startup with no financing to a hot property snapped up less than a decade later by Turner for more than $200 million, 
is itself worthy of an origin story. In our episode intermissions this time, we're going to hear directly from the company's leaders insights and stories behind their dramatic success. It all started with Dave Finocchio, one of Bleacher Report's co-founders. I was one of those people who never had any idea what I wanted to do. And I, at a certain point, just kind of had these observations about sports writers were out of touch with my generation. At the time, I kind of snapped a little bit. It involved a Notre Dame basketball game and specifically a a player on the team named Turin Francis. And Turin was a McDonald's All-American in high school. It was maybe supposed to spend one or two years max at Notre Dame, but he'd had a bunch of back issues and the guy never had great hands. And it was very clear at that point that he was never going to have an NBA career and was like, best case, a Europe guy, but probably not even that. And so I go to this basketball game on campus and the next morning I wake up and there's an actual honest-to-God column about Notre Dame basketball. And some poor writer, who in fairness to the writer, probably watched the basketball team play one time, wrote this glowing review of Turin Francis, who had had a good game the night before, but um, specifically said, you know, look out for this guy to be a lottery pick in this year's draft. And that, for me, was just kind of like I snapped a little bit and said, you know what, <laughs> this, this model is just broken. I mean, you know, there's thousands of people in the fan base who have better information than this guy has. So, like, it just made me think that this space was a little bit of a mess and that sports fans of a lot of different teams deserved better than they were getting. That was one of the light bulb moments for me, for sure. True story. When I first tried One Blade Razor, I gave up after 45 seconds, but the packaging was so cool. So that Saturday morning, I tried it again. This time, I actually read the instructions and decided to be, God forbid, a tad patient. The One Blade experience turned out to be time well spent. The design is awesome. They spent over a million bucks and had over a thousand prototypes to build the world's best razor. One Blade didn't set out to create a good razor or even a great razor. Their goal was to create the perfect tool to deliver the perfect shave. And after using it, there's no doubt that they succeeded. Because the one thing that One Blade teaches you is it's not just about the razor, it's about the total shaving experience. This situation is simple. You get a barbershop shave at home. My face has never felt better. And by the way, you get a lifetime guarantee with this thing. And if you don't like it, there's a no hassle, 60 day trial, no harm, no foul. But I doubt you'll wanna let go of it. It's just that good. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ORIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. That's onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ORIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off your entire purchase. One Blade. Come for the shave, stay for the deep breath. Lane Kiffin has taken one of the most dramatic, circuitous treks of any football coach in modern memory, and following both triumphs and much-publicized controversies at USC and Tennessee, among others, Saban offered Kiffin a chance to repair his reputation, giving him the job of offensive coordinator from 2014 to 2016. Did you have any trepidations about working for him? I mean, I had talked to people, and you'd heard the stories and things, but you know, I felt that those things that people had talked about you know, whatever those difficulties or that environment was worth it comparable to what you would learn, you know, from going there. You know, I had been in a completely opposite environment as an assistant coach. You know, I'd been a head coach, obviously, at Oakland, Tennessee, USC. Well, prior to that, when I was assistant coach was six years with Pete Carroll. So that's really all I knew. So to go from that environment to a Nick Saban environment, and I'm not saying which is right or which is wrong at all. I'm just saying they are from A to Z, completely polar opposite. Could you give me an example of like world A versus world B? Again, I'm not saying which one's better. They're just totally different leadership styles, you know, on the way that communication with people, treatment of people, players, it's just different. And both can work as, as they have, you know, two of the best coaches in the history of college football. Is there a memory you have of Pete Carroll that just in terms of working with him that might be emblematic of his style and that kind of world that he creates as a head coach? Yeah, the best way I would describe it is create an environment of want to versus have to. Not just for your players where they want to come around, they want to come to practice, they want to come to workouts, but that your coaches do too versus that they have to. You know, where the coach is driving into work, 
morning going, God, I got to go to work today. I don't really want to because I don't really like it there. It's not a fun environment. It's not positive. It's negative. So Coach Carroll was all about positivity, treatment of people, treatment of players, fun environment. Everyone feel like they were involved. That's what he did, and it wasn't by accident. Did you ever use the word fun environment to characterize the Alabama environment? No. The former player said to me, they loved playing in games because not only was the crowd there, but because it was easier than practices. I mean, are you at a point now getting ready for the season where these guys are starting to suffer? Oh, yes, sir. This is week five or week six right now that we're into the off-season program. In that fourth quarter program, we are in what week five or week six right now. For someone who isn't familiar with the phrase, could you describe what the fourth quarter program is? So fourth quarter program is 60 minutes of conditioning. Front to back, top to bottom, it's four days a week. You're going to run 110-yard sprints, whether it be a straightaway or a curve. You're going to do speed improvement drills. Speed improvement drills are your high knees, your butt kicks, your ankle flips, your bounding. The agilities are going to be on another day completely, where you do bag drills, cone drills, short distance sprints, and then Thursday, Friday, you basically do just the opposite of what you just did. So that means that we are going to lift three times a week, we're going to run four times a week, and then they do seven on seven and stuff like that on their own. And are you keyed into their diets as well? Yes, 100%. We're all on the same page. Between the athletic trainer, the nutritionist, all three of us are on the same page because we're all trying to obviously gain muscle and lose fat. Do you pay attention to sleep as well? Yes, uh, we do the sleep monitoring. And honestly, the best thing for sleep is to educate them. And so we, we have a lot of speakers come in during the summer, but we have a lot of meetings and it's called mental conditioning for success. And so we spend time in the classroom two, three times a week to discuss, okay, here's our topic. But basically we answer the question, why? Why do we run the way we do? Why do we monitor the sleep the way we do? Why do we focus on the diet? Why do we do this in the weight room? Why do we have seven on seven? All the whys, we try to answer those so that they take ownership. And when the players take ownership, special things happen. I should come down there for a couple of weeks. Come on, no, nah, don't do that. No, it's not safe. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that we train so hard, I think, obviously you want to be in good shape for football, but I think most of it is to kind of create that mental toughness, to create that edge. You know, you think you're tough, but you really can't know that until you've been pushed to that point. I think that was the main job of the strength coaches. They were the biggest parts probably of sort of truly indoctrinating us to the standard process lifestyle because they were with us every single day. That's one of their main goals is to like push us past our self-imposed limitations. You know, the mind quits long before the body ever does. That was one of the things we always said. And I really believe that. You may ask why former Yankees manager Joe Girardi is now joining us, and the answer is fairly simple. Girardi and Saban formed a friendship many years ago, and in 2015, Girardi cited Saban as one of his significant influences as a manager, praising Saban for his organization, his relationships with players, and the idea of winning each play. The two men share a particular fondness for 2009, the year Saban won his first national championship at Alabama, and the year Girardi managed the Yankees to a World Series title. Both men have invited one another to come and talk to their teams. I asked Girardi if the Yankees, professionals and for the most part older than Alabama players, were eager to hear from Saban. I think anytime you have a chance to listen to someone who has accomplished as much as he has as a coach, you're going to listen because obviously he has a lot of right formulas and there's going to be a lot of wisdom. You know, maybe for some of the Mississippi State guys, they weren't so excited to see him, but... You know, the one thing about athletes is they usually love other sports. And kids that went to college usually get involved with college football and watching games, and they were excited to see him. Did you remember what he said about being there and talking to the Yankees? Well, he grew up a Yankees fan. He grew up in West Virginia, and I, and I think it was he used to go to his friend's dad's store, and they used to listen to the games on the radio. And it was, you know, I didn't know that about him before I met him, that he was a huge Yankee fan. And you think, how does a 
a young man from West Virginia become such a Yankee fan. And he was, and I thought that was interesting. But I could listen to him all day. You were invited down to Alabama to speak to the team. What was that like for you, and what was your approach? Yeah, I started thinking, why would Nick Saban, as accomplished as he is, would want me? But I talked about being the hunted. Alabama's the hunted. They have to bring their best every game because the team that's playing them, it's their national title game. You know, And you feel like some connective tissue with the Yankees, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, you have to bring your best, especially when you're in, at a time where you're winning a lot and people are gunning for you, and, and you never get a, a mental break in a sense. Like, some teams will let down against other competition, but never against Alabama, never against the Yankees. They're going to bring their best. They're going to want to make their season by beating you or winning the season series. So I talked about being accountable to each other and watching out for each other. You guys are all 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. You're not always going to make the best decisions, so your job is to protect each other from making bad decisions because I feel like there's a lot of temptations and there's a lot of time you have on your hands. you got to protect each other. In college football, I mean, they're together from the end of July all the way, you know, hopefully, God willing, to the middle of January. It's a long time. And you got to learn how to be accountable to each other and to work together. We're speaking now in the off-season. Is your methodology different in terms of gearing up for a new season after you've won a national championship, or do you still have the same kind of operational guidelines that you use for preparing yourself and preparing the team for a new season? Well, I think the operational guidelines, you're always trying to improve, whether you win the national championship or you lose on the last play of the game or you didn't even make it to the playoffs because you're always looking for a better way. What are you thinking about the new season? I mean, obviously there's the particulars of the schedule, but are you now at the point where you're starting to really think about tactics and other things like well, that? Well, I think these things all work hand in hand. You know, I think mindset of the team is something that's a process and it's ongoing. It's a work in progress all the time. Okay, here's what the teams that we play are going to do. How do we need to prepare our players to be able to respond and have a readiness to be prepared to play against this stuff, whether it's what somebody does on defense, offense, special teams, or whatever. So there's a technical aspect, and there's a mindset that you're always trying to create throughout your team, which is you know basically what reflects the culture in the long run of the kind of team you want to have. And that's something that you preach, sell, try to get people to buy into, and understand that buying into these things and everybody buying into the principles and values and the standards is what's going to help us have a chance to be a good team. Is this an exciting time of the year for you, or is this a time when you're like a little on edge because you want all those things to play out the right way? I hate to think that I'm on edge. I'm always sort of have a certain level of intensity mental intensity in terms of the issues that we face, a sense of urgency, immediacy, and want to think things through intelligently so that you don't make mistakes, whether it's in personal development of the team characteristics that you're trying to develop or the technical aspects of what you're trying to develop. After you win a national championship, first of all, you've probably heard Coach Saban say he gets frustrated about the national championship because it's so late in the year that he feels like he's missing out on recruiting. You know, that just kind of that describes him. He said, I hated the taste in my mouth in 2009. I felt like we had a sloppy year in 2010 because we spent too much time celebrating. And so this year, I'm not waiting. I'm taking two days, and we're getting back at it. So sure enough, even before the parade had started, he had coaches up there already game planning for the next season, right? Already getting everybody's mind to move on. And hey, you know, it sounds ruthless, but it worked, right? We won the national championship again in 2012. We repeated back-to-back because two days after that national championship, we were already focused and on to the next year. That's the kind of focus. I've never been around a coach who would actually do that, who would tell players to move on after two days. And I love it. I love it. I, I mean, that's what it takes to be great. He understands it. He knows it. Uh, and it just kind of encapsulates who he is. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash Arjuns. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never have to miss a great match. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, Origins listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Origins. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash O-R-I-G-I-N-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash Origins. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Tom Rinaldi calls himself a generalist, but serves, among other duties, as a sideline reporter for ESPN at the college football championship, the Rose Bowl, and other major college games throughout the season. Rinaldi has spent a great deal of time interviewing Saban and has been a guest on the coach's radio show. The two, evidently, have forged a strong rapport. When I told Saban that Rinaldi had sent along his best, Saban smiled at me and said, Tell Rinaldi I said he's full of crap. Rinaldi graduated from Penn, received his master's from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and has shelves crammed with 12 sports Emmys in addition to six Edward R. Murrow Awards. Tom, you've been around a lot of successful players and coaches. How much of an outlier is Nick Saban? I think he's a pretty significant outlier. He is unique. I have been fortunate to be around a lot of different coaches and athletes because I'm a generalist. Jim and cover a lot of different sports. But there's a number of things which I think signify how different he is. A lot of times when a coach or an athlete or anyone has great success, that leads to a type of deafness. Why would you change anything? Why would you listen to another or a newer voice? What you're doing is working. It becomes instead a fight to continue to do exactly what you've done. He absolutely contradicts that thought and theory. He's always seeking a newer voice. He's always seeking a different way, a new look, a different thought. That's manifested all the time, Jim, in the speakers that he brings in to talk to the team. People who are both rooted deeply in football and distant from the sport in any way. It deals with what types of books he reads the types of people he tries to talk to, to gain ideas from. And I find a great humility in that, that he is still a student. He still wants to learn because there may be an advantage, something to gain, another inch, another idea, and he relentlessly pursues that. He also flips on its head the notion that people operate at their best when they're not tense. You enter the building and it feels pressurized. People are not comfortable as a default position. They know that a great deal is demanded of them. They know they're going to be placed in positions that are going to make them uncomfortable, and they're expected to operate through that and succeed in that. There aren't that many situations or enterprises where that's a successful dynamic, where you just want to put people under great stress. And yet, the results speak for themselves. I certainly felt that when I walked in there. It was very intense. Why did you feel? I think because you're in a world where there's little margin for error. And the only good news is that you're aware of it and you need to adapt to it. You just have to be on top of your game. Every facet of the building, it's a high wire act. And you got to like being up there. And that idea also that there's not a net. And that idea that life without a net is not sustainable, he defeats that through sheer force of personality, sheer will. This is a demanding environment. And if you don't want to meet those demands, or you can't, no will will, but get out. For anyone who is silly enough to forget the nature of Saban's absolute power at Alabama, I give you Exhibit A. When the stakes were the highest, before Bama's national championship game against Clemson in January of 2017, Lane Kiffin was notified that his services as offensive coordinator were no longer wanted. Not next season, the next week. He wouldn't have a headset. He wouldn't be on the sidelines. He wouldn't be at the game. You've had 360 degrees of experiences as an assistant coach and a head coach in your career. Great triumphs and some tough times. 
That conversation about hearing that you were going to be out of the championship game, is that the most difficult, or is it in the top three, top five? Uh, that depends on how you think the conversation went. You know, there's a lot of different stories out there about what really happened. So, and like I said, I don't really, I don't want to get into that. No, I understand. I'm just talking about in terms of just you processing things and you having to go through things as a leader and as an individual. Was it one of the most difficult things that you had to go through? The difficult thing for me was watching the game. And if they were going to lose, which obviously I wanted them to win, it would have been a lot easier if they would have just lost by 28 points or something. The fact that the game was so close, you know, the third down struggles on offense, you know, Jalen's play, who obviously is the quarterback coach coordinator you're directly responsible for, and the game to go down to one play, you know, and I would hope anyone would say this, so I don't, this is not arrogant, we would have won if I was there. Well, I would hope that if it's a one-play game, that the coordinator, which is the only play caller that the true freshman quarterback knew, you know, his entire career, you know, isn't there all of a sudden for you for the final game. So that was a difficult thing for me, knowing how hard those players worked there the entire year, offense, defense, special teams, how hard it is there, and all the work they put in that to come down to being that close to winning a championship was tough to watch. Did you reach out to them afterwards? Well, within an hour, yeah. Once again, Greg McElroy. It was during the national championship game we were playing against the Texas Longhorns, and and the Texas Longhorns were incredible and, and really good football team. Unfortunately, the best player on their team was Colt McCoy, and he got injured on the first drive of the game, and he was unable to return, and I've known Colt forever, so it kind of broke my heart, but I'm not going to lie, seeing Garrett Gilbert out there on the field, it made me a little bit more comfortable, to be frank. Knowing that you're going to have a true freshman going up against our defense, it's going to be tough for them to mount enough points to eventually beat us. And we were up 24-3 at halftime. So it it was one-sided, without question. Third quarter, they make some adjustments. They hit a couple big plays. And next thing you know, blink of an eye, it's 24-21. And all of us are kind of sitting there like, what happened? You know, we were just had a very comfortable lead, a three-touchdown lead. And all of a sudden, it's a field goal game. We better put a drive together. Eventually, we get the ball back, put a little drive together, pin them deep. Our linebacker, Eric Anders, comes around the corner, sacks Garrett Gilbert, fumble. We score on the next play, and that was essentially the icing on the cake, and it was over. We're celebrating confetti everywhere, first national championship in 17 years. We're just so incredibly proud, and, and frankly, for lack of a better word, relieved. We get back to the locker room. Coach Saban says something along the lines of this. Seniors, I'm so proud of you. Thank you guys for buying in. When we got here, you didn't have to follow our lead, but you did, and you bought in, and now you've been rewarded. Alabama's back as a result of your leadership. You guys coming back, that's not the way we play in the second half. Uh, you, you know, Hey, we got to make sure that we play 60 minutes in the ballgame. I'm proud of you. We'll get that sorted out. Uh, but enjoy the night. This is a great moment for Alabama. Just, hey, think a little bit more about how we can finish this game a little better next time we get here. So it's just, it's him, though. It, it, he's just constantly thinking about what's next. What's next? How can I teach as a result of this experience more so than, man, you know, what a great moment. What a great moment. He's always said, so what, what's next? And I'm not sure there's a story that better explains that line of thinking than the one that involved him yelling at us a little bit after the game in the national championship. When I look at Scott Cochran and the job that he's done, you see that his players are physically superior, his players are superior to other clubs, and it's the work that they put in, and it's a foundation that they set for success because if you don't have your health and your strength on a football field, you're in trouble. But to me, what it says about Coach Saban, which people probably don't think, is the people that he hires, he trusts to do their job and allows them to do their job. And you see them flourish because you can't micromanage everything. You got to trust your coaches. And I think that's what I love seeing about him, that he trusts Scotty. Who draws the line and how do the two of you come up with the formula for how you're going to train these players? Well, it's great that you asked that because I'm going to tell you, we are doing the same exact program that I don't know if he did as a player or but he learned as an assistant coach. We do that same exact program when it comes to the off-season program. 
So he knows every position inside and out. And when it comes down to, you know, how hard should we push him right now, you know, I don't want to say it's been a trial and error, but there have been some instances where, you know, maybe we needed to push him a little bit harder. Maybe we needed to pull back during this period so that we were better three weeks down the line. This past weekend, I had all the freshmen to the house to come eat, you know, and I cooked for them. You know, I didn't bring people in to cook. I cooked and I said, hey, let's break bread. Let's talk. Let you see what my house looks like with my family and my kids. You know, when Coach Saban does the same thing, he's going to bring in the leadership group to his house and have them over, do a barbecue with them and have them on the boat. And then he's going to have the freshmen over right before we start camp. And I think getting to know them is really, to me, that is a huge part of the battle. I think that's 70% of knowing who they are and what they're about. And it opens up doors, you know, and obviously it Coach Saban gives us the resources to get it done, baby. At the conclusion of every game, after Nick gets through with all the different duties that he's got to handle with the team, the media, handling anything that could be considered official, he will ultimately get in his car with Terry, and they will play the same song, the first song that they play in the car on the drive home. And then the song is Gimme Shelter. And they do that as ritual and routine. Now, there's a lot of different songs you could play. But to me, there's so much in that, that when it's just the two of them, and they get together and they're in that car, Gimme Shelter is the song that they dial up. And I think that's what she is for him. She's a shelter. She absolutely rules the roost. And she is as funny and big-hearted and bright, just an incandescent personality. We do love music. You know, back in seventh grade, when we were kind of liking each other, we used to go to the Valley Fire Department dances. So we grew up that, you know, we liked to go to concerts. You know, he likes the Eagles and the Rolling Stones and Michael Jackson. And I have to say, though, I'm ready for something a little different because he... <laughs> He does put the same songs on over and over. But I guess he's only in the car for about six and a half minutes every day, so they're new to him. In late July of 2018, Alabama extended Nick Saban's contract by one year, which will have him leading the Crimson Tide through the 2025 season, and also includes significant raises in his current deal. As a result, Saban is now the first college football coach who has a guaranteed annual salary of more than $10 million dollars. It also means, as Darren Ravel has pointed out, that over those 19 seasons, Alabama will wind up paying Saban $126 million, which averages out as $18,169 a day. For those who remember him, Alabama's famed coach Bear Bryant made roughly $18,000 a year. Way back when our first NFL job, I'm going to say we were with the Cleveland Browns and we won our first playoff game which gave us our first huge bonus, which in our mind was huge bonus. It was probably $8,000. And, and it was um, the first time we got a real chunk of money for winning some big championship. And, um, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, pay off the visa bill, get a baby grand piano, go to the beach. Okay, I'm thinking of all, dreaming about all these wonderful things we could do with that check. And I'll never forget, Nick came home and he said, "Um, I think it's time we did something for your parents. My dad was a coal miner, and um, of course, everything he had was the Cleveland Browns, sweatshirts and coats and uh, hats and jackets. And so we we arranged to pay off his mortgage on his house, which, uh, you know, not a lot, but at the time, it seemed like a lot to him. it was one less thing they would have to worry about on a monthly basis. So we did. We paid off the mortgage and we got the title to the house and I stuck it in a pocket in the Cleveland Brown jacket and I'll never forget him opening that jacket and putting it on and tipping his hat and laughing and saying, man, it fits. This is, I love it. And I said, check your pocket, Dad. And he reached in and saw the title. Oh, I could cry. <laughs> title to the house and he said 
and he got tears in his eyes and he said, now I can die in peace. <laughs> I guess because mom wouldn't have to worry about <laughs> the house. But it's who the kids and people don't see that side of it. Coaches, that was so enlightening. I hope you found it beneficial to you. So let me share with you three takeaways to think about. So here's the first one. Silence makes people uncomfortable, and that's a good thing. If an athlete or an assistant coach has underperformed, rather than berating them, it may be way more powerful to use the power of silence. Explain the problem and just shut up. Make them feel uncomfortable. Make them figure it out. Silence is a powerful tool to use. And here's the second takeaway. Physical conditioning. It's the mental benefit. Saban is a big believer in having his teams physically conditioned to the max. But the reason is because of the impact it has on their mindset. He talks about never letting a player bend over from being tired. That's a sign of weakness. He doesn't want the opposing team to see that. Don't give anything away. And then the third takeaway, mental conditioning, two to three times a week. The key approach to mental conditioning is to explain the why to athletes, why they do specific things like certain conditioning drills, why eating properly is important. By explaining the why, the athletes take ownership. And here's the action step this week. In this interview, two things really stood out to me. First, this idea of using both silence and questions to influence athletes. So powerful. Also in the interview, Sabin talks about why it's important that you create a culture where the athletes hold each other accountable. They gotta be doing it for their fellow teammates, not for you as the coach. That's how you help them avoid temptations. So the action step this week is two things. First, how can you use questions more in order to be more effective in influencing your athletes? More than just telling them what you want them to do. And secondly, how can you create more teammate accountability in your culture? So coaches, next we're gonna hear from a leadership coach with a military background. Listen for how he says you don't want to make your environment too comfortable. I think you'll find this interesting. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning in to Dose of Leadership. No interview today, another solo episode. I appreciate the feedback. You've asked me to do more solo episodes, so that's what I'm going to try to do. I've committed to in 2020. So today I want to talk about not being afraid of making things a little uncomfortable. And what I mean by that, it seems like we go to great lengths as leaders to create this pleasant working environment all the time. And we do that because we assume, and it seems to, on the surface, make sense that we want happy, comfortable, productive employees. And that by creating this very pleasant working environment, that we're going to get a higher, effective, more productive employee. And so we go to great lengths making sure that no one is stressed out. We go to great lengths in our own selves to make sure that we're coming across as, you know, almost like a parent type figure, that we're one big family. We're very conscious about making sure that tiptoe around someone who's being sensitive at the time. And we go to great lengths of maybe bringing the dog to work or creating these rec rooms where we've got pool tables, foosball tables, ping pong tables. And we have these tournaments. Again, all with the assumption, all with good intentions, thinking that's going to produce more productivity. And I'm here to tell you that that isn't the case. I think that's a myth. I think there's some great value in to make things a little uncomfortable. And we're going to dive into that in this episode. And it is about not being afraid of making things a little uncomfortable. Again, I said that we go to great lengths, and I'm guilty of this. And particularly when I got out of the Marine Corps and I got in the corporate working environment, I thought it should be separate. And I assume that if I 
you know, spend a lot of time on making this place the most pleasant it can be working, that my people are going to be happy, comfortable, and productive. And I found that's not necessarily the case. I'm saying that we should be a little more intentional and judicious about making things a little uncomfortable, not for the sake of being a jerk, not for, for producing undue stress. There needs to be some intentionality and purpose behind this act of making things a little uncomfortable, and it has to come from a place of love. So let's just make sure we get that out on the front, understood out at the, at the get-go, because I can already see some of the feedback that I'm going to get. I know when I talk about this in person, a lot of people are uncomfortable with this. They disagree with it. But hear me out and the reason why I think this is so beneficial. If you look back, and I think back to, you've heard me talk about my Marine Corps career ad nauseum, I'm sure, but it is was so instrumental. It was really the, one of the reasons why I started this show is because when I worked in the corporate arena and I saw the stark differences between the culture of what it was like to work in corporate America and what it was like in the Marine Corps. And one of the things I really did appreciate, and I look back at my career and that, you know, and going through flight school and learning how to be an aviator and learning how to be an officer in the Marine Corps, you would not say that that was a comfortable experience. In fact, it was very arduous and very stressful to go through that whole process particularly going through flight school. There was always this pressure to perform. There was always this ability to make sure I did it in a safe manner. You know, you know, aviation can be inherently dangerous if you're stupid and you're not paying attention. And the same goes for the rest of the Marine Corps and the combat side, right? It is not a comfortable proposition. You always got to prepare for the next rank. You got to prepare for physically. I had to be in top shape. I couldn't gain weight. I had to look good in a uniform. I couldn't rest on my past performance. You know, there was always that stress of you're only as good as your last landing. You're always preparing for the worst. You're always training. You're always in this mindset. And so you would expect in that kind of stressful, uncomfortable environment, you would think that no one would want to do it. And you know, they would look back at that with, oh, my God, thank God that's over. Now I can live the cushy life and, and everything can be comfortable and smooth. But if you look back at the morale level, of the Marines. And you've heard me talk about it and I get around my friends. I look back at that with such fondness. And you could argue that the Marines have one of the highest morale of any branch of the services. And you would come to the conclusion that, well, either everybody's crazy and they're, they're you know, sadistic and they like that torture or there's something else. And it's obviously there's something else. And it's because I think comfortableness or making things as smooth as possible does not inspire or ignite the mind. Yeah, I like to relax and, and veg out and not think sometimes, just like everybody else. But I think overall, if you're looking at your life in total, I don't think that's how we're wired. I don't th really don't think we're wired that way as human beings. I really do believe that if you're going to lead a significant life, that there must be some sort of struggle to conquer or overcome. And that makes sense when you hear that, right? Again, no one can describe that time I had in the Marine Corps and learning how to be an aviator as comfortable. In fact, it was the kiss of death, particularly in aviation, it still is now, to get in the comfort zone. I can't afford to get in the comfort zone. I always have to be pushing myself and get in the growth zone. Maybe you've heard me talk about this on this show. I know that's a huge part of my training when I'm coaching individuals, that when you're on a leadership journey, it is always constantly pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and into the growth zone because the growth zone and the comfort zone cannot exist in the same plane. They cannot coincide with each other. The lazy side of us wants to, because the, the comfort zone, it makes sense because it's comfortable and being uncomfortable is uncomfortable. And you have to intentionally push yourself outside of it. But when you conquer that, when you overcome the struggle, you look back on that with fondness because it meant something to you and that's what I'm talking about here when if you're a leader in an organization and you're accountable for people take that energy and effort away of trying to make this as stress-free as possible and don't be afraid to make things a little tense because struggle actually produces significance and the reason why I say this is so important is because I think businesses particularly in the civilian side the corporate side we lose the edge, and I know this even from my most recent coaching contract, consulting contract with a company, and particularly when I got in the middle and below, and particularly new employees, and we start talking about the mindset of business. Generally, most businesses, most employees in any organization do not understand that 
business is a fight for survival, that it is life and death. And particularly when they're young and they're middle and below, it's almost like, and I, I think I was guilty of this, that they just exist. The corporation is going to exist. They're always going to exist. The job is, you know, an opportunity. It's almost like I'm entitled, like it's a right. And I think a big part of the challenge of business is always battling mediocrity. And the more that we try to make things comfortable for people and we don't set the mindset that business is a fight for survival and that lives are at stake here, then we'll be seduced with this idea of trying to keep everybody in the comfort zone. And what happens when you get everybody a mindset, a culture of comfort, then you start breeding mediocrity and stagnation. And eventually the competition is going to come up and bite you and you're going to be in a world of hurt. We see this time and time again in organizations. You cannot get complacent. And I think a lot of this goes to the root, or we, we, we can at least fight this, if we stop spending in a ridiculous amount of time, energy, and resources trying to completely de-stress our organization. I get it. We're taught stress is bad, and stress over a long time is not sustainable. I understand that. But we're kidding ourselves thinking that business is not chaotic. It is extremely chaotic. Life is chaotic. Unexpected things always happen. And that's why we have leadership. That's the price of leadership. Fear and uncertainty never, never goes away. It will always be with us. That gives you job security. If you're willing to embrace that mindset, and if you're willing to be the composed force within that chaos, you can write your own ticket. And that's what's needed. Not writing your own ticket, but what's need, that's what's needed in the organization. That composed confident, consistent, and courageous force within the chaos. That's why we study leadership. That's why we become intentional about it. Please don't misunderstand me when I say this. This is not about treating your employees like combat-ready Marines. It's not about stressing them out for stress's sake. This has nothing to do with your ego or your own sadistic internal perversions. It's about acting in love. Remember, leadership is love. It's coming from a place. I am sacrificing so that others may prosper. So I'm not suggesting you do this for the sake of being a jerk and letting people think you're an a-hole 24-7. It's not about living a persona. It's about authentically and refraining and restraining yourself and getting comfortable yourself with being a little uncomfortable. As long as their best interests are kept at heart. This is critical. Listen closely. As long as their best interests are kept at heart, there must be a defined purpose towards the stress. That's the intentional part that you as a leader are going to get paid the big bucks for. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean withholding guidance when you normally feel like you've got to spend the next hour teaching and mentoring this person. Maybe at that time, silence is what's needed. Maybe when your top sales guy misses the mark, doesn't meet the quota. Instead of going a deep dive and trying to figure out what happened, maybe you just bring him or her into the room and you say, this is unacceptable. And if you don't straighten this out, we might need to rethink your position. And that's it. And I know you're going to be sitting there wanting to pat him on the back and pump him up and say, it's okay. Maybe it's time for a little bit of tough love. Let them figure out. Because the true leaders understand that that silence or letting them feel a little... Let's be honest, a little embarrassed. They've let us down. Let them soak it in. Let them marinate in that feeling and see what comes out on the other side. If they're worth their weight in gold, they're going to transform. They're going to transform themselves. Because remember, leadership isn't about you coming up and sprinkling some magic dust of inspiration and changing them. They already have what's inside of them, particularly your high performers. So it's your job to make sure that they extract it. It's your job to not mess up and comfort them during their transformation. Even though I know you're going to want to so bad. You're going to want to so bad. But hold back. Let them reach down. Let them find their, their own intuition, their own gut, their own grit. And help them develop using their own resources without much help or encouragement from you. And then eventually... When you see them transform and they no longer need that help, they no longer need that encouragement, they've become an independent resource and more useful to you and the organization. And it's then at that point 
you can give the praise. You can give the wink, the nod, the good job. And won't it mean that much more? They'll never forget that. Think about all of those great family members, teachers, coaches that meant something to you in your life. Didn't they do that? You know, I remember doing some, getting some coaching from my HR manager when I was getting ready to do annual reviews. And she was coaching me and she says, now make sure when you deliver the bad news, you got to give them the sandwich theory. Start off with a compliment, then give them the bad news, and then give them a compliment on the other side. Sandwich it in so they don't leave dejected. I hate that. I've tried that a couple times and I just think it's wishy-washy. My father never did that. My coaches that I respect and look back to with admiration never did that. They spoke to me frankly, honestly, and sometimes they just treated me with silence. The disappointed father speech is eminently more powerful than a deep dive on trying to figure out what went wrong. So what I'm saying is, it comes down to expectations, the mindset. Your job as a leader is to set those expectations to say, look, this is a life and death proposition. There are lives at stake. Fine, you want to spend time and resources on a foosball table or a ping pong table or bring your pet to work. I'm not saying you don't have, you can't, you, it's bad to do those things necessarily. But if you think you're doing those things for the sole purpose of producing a more effective and productive environment, you're spinning your wheels. Great leaders understand that it's occasionally okay, it's occasionally okay to make things uncomfortable. In fact, it's a requirement. It's occasionally okay to make things uncomfortable so that not only will they increase their professional capacity months, years, way down the road, they're going to be thankful for it. And that's what it means to create a legacy. Hey, coaches, I hope you enjoyed that. So most leaders want to make the environment for those they lead to be comfortable. But as we learned, hey, that actually is counterproductive to a growth environment. Richard makes a point pretty clear. You can't grow if you're comfortable. So the action step is step back and look at your culture. How are you doing things? Are you making things too comfortable for your athletes? Where can you create growth in your athletes from making things uncomfortable? So they actually get comfortable being uncomfortable. An interesting thought. Until next time, hook them.